Welcome to Taneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajawara, co-president of Taneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you for joining the 2023 season premiere of Taneo Insights. I'm Kevin Kajawara in New York City. On Tuesday, January the 3rd, the business of the United States resumed as the 118th Congress was sworn in. Actually, check that. Um, it was four days later in the early hours of Saturday, January the 7th, that the 118th Congress was sworn in because first, they had to go through 15 absolutely thrilling rounds uh, of determining the speakership. So now the business can commence and let the investigations begin. Um, meanwhile, the Senate uh, and the White House have agendas of their own, and the Supreme Court has a number of major rulings expected on everything from voting rights and election law to affirmative action uh, during this session. So joining me today to uh, discuss what to expect from our nation's leaders in the early part of the year uh, are two veterans of this, uh, of this program. Steve Clemens is here. He's the founding editor-at-large of Semaphore, where he leads its principles newsletter. Uh, a daily insider's guide to power in Washington, D.C. Previously, he was the Washington editor-at-large at The Hill, as well as at The Atlantic, uh, and is the proprietor of the popular political blog, The Washington Note. And Orson Porter, he heads up Taneo's Washington, D.C. office, and he leads our government and public affairs practice. Previously, he was a special assistant to the president in the Clinton White House, uh, and was the U.S. Director of Government and Public Affairs at a little sneaker company called Nike. Uh, and for our regular audience, of course, you know the drill. If you want to get your Thursday off to a rip-roaring start, you do a shot every time Orson mentions his beloved home state of Wisconsin uh, on here. So you should be pretty lit by about 8.45. So Steve and Orson, um, thank you for being here today. And, and uh, I should mention they are both joining today from the swamp itself. Washington, D.C. <laughs> so, Steve, um, you know, I joked about it at the outset, but, uh, you know, set the set the stage here for us as you see it. And maybe give us your your impressions of the events of last week, but what that implies then um, for, you know, for this Congress functionality and what you're expecting as we head into this. Well, Kevin, thank you. And let me just start by reminding people that in 1856, Nathaniel Preston Banks became Speaker of the House after 133 ballots. Uh, so, and, and he turned out to be a pretty good speaker. So those people who think that 15 ballots was a lot, you know, there, there, there's, you know, the, others had it more difficult. Um, but I think that the real setting we see right now, which is fascinating, if you, if you just forget the chaos we just saw in the House, we just saw Mitch McConnell, Senator Mitch McConnell, you know, travel, you know, to see the, you know, the establishment, the building of this bridge with Joe Biden. Uh, they were mature, they were stable, it was you know, no drama, uh, and that is in contrast to the chaos that we saw in the House of Representatives. We saw Kevin McCarthy, you know, prevail. I mean, he, 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 he stuck it out uh, through a lot of ballots in which he was looking at 212 United Democratic uh, votes behind Hakeem Jeffries. I mean, that in itself is a very major sub-story, the ability that, of the Democrats to hold everything together. But um, clearly, there are a lot of folks in the GOP caucus that one, don't agree with Kevin McCarthy, don't trust his leadership, and some just don't like him. And so the process of getting there was very painful for him and painful to, to watch. And it means really, and I, and I don't think this is a surprise to anyone, is that 
Kevin McCarthy had to give away things that he didn't want to give away uh, to secure the speakership. And, and one of the most remarkable things that he gave away um, was this ability to, uh, this, this motion to vacate, to, to allow one member of the House of Representatives to stop the business of the House and essentially call for the potential execution of their leader, at least removal from the, the, the speaker position. And that means that uh, now Speaker McCarthy is going to be looking over his shoulder every moment uh, that that Congress is in session. And it's going to be a tough go. And we've got a lot of big issues out there. And particularly, everybody's talking about the debt ceiling debate. But that's one of many, many things out there in which there's no consensus, in my view, uh, between uh, in, inside the GOP and the Freedom Caucus. Now, we, I, people toss around the Freedom Caucus. And I think the Freedom Caucus is the, the, the primary focus of, of the, the challenge here. But I want to remind people Marjorie Taylor Greene is a member of the Freedom Caucus. And she was strongly supportive. Of, of Kevin McCarthy. I think he was supportive of her in the past. That explains that. But the Freedom Caucus did something remarkable. I think after watching two years of Joe Manchin basically become the center of power in the Senate and Washington and seeing how important and, and influential that inflection point can be at various times, they all wanted to be Joe Manchin. They want to remind Kevin McCarthy that they're not the fringe of the party. They're the core of the party. And literally nothing can happen without them um, basically signing off and giving their consent. So that's the situation today, is the Freedom Caucus has gone from fringe to core in the Republican Party. And Kevin McCarthy, I was on a show yesterday and you know, was asked, you know, do, do I think he'll make it through the year? And I personally don't think, I think this is the time of surprise and change and disruption. And we'll see how long he does. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, you know, I think you have a very unstable House, and that's going to meet, have implications both for the White House and the Biden agenda and for what happens in the Senate. So if I could just follow up here real quick, because you mentioned um, in your remarks about what he had given uh, away, obviously, to whittle down those 21 votes that, uh, uh, that were arrayed against him to get them to either finally vote for him or at least vote, uh, vote present to, uh, to put him over the threshold. Um, but we still don't know. We know a lot about uh, about the way that they're going to um, uh, what he gave away and what, how they're going to conduct business going forward here. But there are still details we don't know. Talking about a backroom right. deal, I don't think there's anything swampier than uh, than that in a sense. But but are, what are what are you hearing about what hasn't yet been sort of uh, confirmed um, in terms of what he's given away that uh, that you fear might be out there? Well, I I don't know if I fear you know what's out there, but I think the big thing that uh, you know, the side deals we're hearing, we've got a great team at Semaphore and, you know, Kadia Goba and Morgan Chalfont, Shelby Talcott are all over this, um, doing an extraordinary job kind of getting into that, you know, mushy stuff of what um, Speaker McCarthy gave away. And I think there are folks out there that have real concerns like Nancy Mace um, and others are very upset about the non, the lack of transparency over some of these deals. You know, but the big things, some of the big things that we know about and that are public, you know, some of them make common sense you know we were discussing earlier giving uh legislators a chance to read bills there was so much reaction against the 1.7 trillion dollar omnibus spending package it was 4,000 pages long and no time to read it and people just basically rebelling and saying requiring so you know giving time and assuring time to read and process those bills of several days i think is you know key um, we know about committee assignments these you know three uh, of these, you know, renegade GOPers, you know, coming on on uh, uh, rules committee, um, certain key moves in the appropriations committee, 
Um, I mentioned the motion to vacate, which was probably the biggest giveaway uh, and I think threat to himself um, that he made part of this. They established a couple of new committees, you know, a, a, a church committee, a sort of a redo of the church committee to investigate the weaponization of the federal government, the use of the various investigative um, agencies like the FBI, uh, IRS, and others, and looking at that committee. They've also established uh, a committee on China to investigate and benchmark China and whether whether that will be a serious committee or you know a posturing committee still still has I talked to Congresswoman uh, Young Kim last night who has a lot of thoughtful views on China and she's definitely not a knee jerk position on the China issue but they're going to have have that there so there's a lot of that but I think the stuff that that matters to some people is is around the debt ceiling and we heard some members of Congress saying you know if Kevin McCarthy isn't willing to sacrifice <laughs> full faith and credit of the United States, and he's not serious. So, and you got people see it exactly the opposite. But clearly, the issues about budget, uh, the budget, government debt, are issues that Kevin McCarthy has made uh, some commitments that will affect the nature of that debate so much that Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick is already flirting and trying to find ways to create discharge petition strategies and others to basically. Um, recover the debt ceiling legislation uh, if it's taken hostage by the Freedom Caucus. So there's a lot of that stuff out there we're still reporting on and getting into, but that's some of the flavor of it. Right. So I want to unpack um, uh, a bunch of that, but I want to bring Orson into the conversation here to kick things off as well. And you know, Orson, your your sort of same question to you that I asked Steve a moment ago. Uh, your your impressions as we get started in this new Congress and. You know how last week um, um, uh, impacted how things are going to move going forward, but but really, you know, Steve mentioned the rules committee um, and the um, and the degree to which you know um, the sort of hard right faction was able to get itself ensconced uh, in a serious way on that committee, and you know some of the things that 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 Steve talked about that are going to govern how business is conducted in Congress going forward. You know, if you sort of strip away the partisanship and, and and the noise around it, are things that in many ways either are a reversion to normal, which was that for most of history, right, um, a um, a motion to vote vacate actually could uh, be initiated by one one member, but tradition and norms prevented that from happening. Um, you know, until it was sort of wielded over John Boehner, I guess, um, and and things like. You know, having 72 hours to consider uh, a bill that may run into the thousands of pages um, uh, is is the kind of thing that, in in many ways, makes sense. On the other hand, making spending bills sort of open to unlimited amendment effectively makes it, um, you know, uh, tantamount to to a filibuster against any spending bill in a sense. So, how do you see um, the big picture uh, unfolding here? Yeah, first of all, thanks uh, for having me on. Happy New Year uh, to our listeners. Uh, congratulations to Steve on a successful launch of a new business empire. Uh, for those of us in D.C., Steve is a brand. He's a businessman. But the party really doesn't start until he walks in. So I'm so happy for him and he and his colleagues. And I know uh, they're going to do some great things. And Kevin, your intro video. Uh, was deserving. I don't know why they didn't have you on the awards program last night. Big uh, question. Everybody's asking. <laughs> you need Steve and I in, in some of those video clips. Boost <laughs> the numbers, but 
we'll talk about that. So on in DC, you know, Kevin McCarthy, and you know, I'm a boxing fan. Uh, usually in the old days, uh, the heavyweight boxing matches went 15 rounds. And now they only do 12. Uh, I think they will go back to 15. Uh, Kevin is a guy who went the distance, as, as we would say, the champion's distance, took a lot of punches. Uh, a lot of people thought it was not, he was going to be knocked out in the seventh or twelfth round. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, he walked out of that ring uh, as the champion with the title. Uh, and I think those who didn't respect him uh, uh, found new ways to really uh, commend him for taking a punch for 15 rounds uh, and still walking out as the victor. Um, so, you know, what, what is promises kept? What, what, did he, what did he promise? I think a lot of this is pretty obvious. Like, as, as Steve clearly pointed out, the first four or five votes, you know, yesterday they voted on abortion. Uh, the second vote was on China. Uh, you know, all of the things that I'm sure the Freedom Caucus said we need uh, has already been rolled out. As Steve also mentioned, uh, I think six uh, members of uh, the Freedom Caucus yesterday got appointed to some really powerful committees. Uh, so that's a check and uh, promises kept too. And then, you know, there, there's a congressman that in D.C. the media is saying uh, he should resign. Uh, if you saw the news yesterday, Kevin McCarthy was the only one uh, that I saw uh, who looked squarely in the media's eye and said, it is not up to us, it is up to the voters. Uh, so I think that has a lot to do with what Steve said, it only takes one person to bring the house down. But that's a new Kevin McCarthy that you probably wouldn't have seen uh, had he not gone through that 15 round battle. So, you know, I don't think it's a big secret. A lot of things are, are in plain view. And all you have to do is take a look at the first 48 hours of leadership to really know uh, what was promised. And I think promises kept on what was rolled out on some of these early floor, 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 floor votes. So Steve, you think uh, then that uh, Santos will remain in his seat longer than, uh, than Kevin McCarthy will, will hold the, uh, hold the gavel? <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't know. George Santos is very hard to predict, and I'm not, not in that business. But I will say he is remarkably resilient, given already, you know, Nassau County Republicans came out and blasted him. The New York GOP has come out and blasted him and said, resign. And this guy's saying, I'm, you know, look, everybody knows everything out there. I was elected. I'm going to will the people. And Kevin McCarthy, um, look, we, we saw the ascension of Kevin McCarthy that was based on it, what ultimately became one vote is, as you had members come down and bring the number down needed by voting present, uh, which eventually even Matt Gates did. I have to tell you people, it, it is fun. It's better than House of Cards ever was when you see Matt Gates trolling Kevin McCarthy and saying, why in the heck are you housing yourself in the speaker's office? You're not the speaker. Get your stuff out. So this is just hilarious. Um, and, and so there is a funny dimension, you know, a comic dimension behind the kind of darkness of, of what we saw. But George Santos, um, so far, we have got Kadia Goba. I mean, he talks to Kadia Goba and just like, you know, gives her great zingers and says, look, I've lost six pounds for doing all this running around. And so we reported that in Semaphore. So, so far, 
who knows, Santos seems to be, for this moment, impervious to those that are bringing him down. And Kevin McCarthy has given him a ledge to um, exist under, and he's going to put him on a committee. And so at that moment, you've got wheels going on that are hard to pull off lest he gets censured. I mean, there may be other parts of the disciplinary side of the House that once those get going, become unavoidable for Santos and for McCarthy. But you know, I got to tell you, in this age where you see it, you've seen presidents do a lot of stuff, uh, you know, subpoenas get ignored. I mean, I don't know what effective discipline in um, the Congress looks like anymore. So we may see Santos survive McCarthy. Yeah. Longer than McCarthy. Get rid of the ethics committee. Um, so I want to follow up then on uh, something, Steve, because Orson, uh, Orson brought this up about, you know, the, the, the early days business uh, that we have seen um, in Congress right. so far. I'll come back to China uh, in, in a moment. But the other yeah. thing, of course, is investigation, investigation, investigation. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, the, the front page of the New York Times today above the fold, every article is about um, investigation on the documents that have now been found, Hunter Biden, right. of course, and just the, uh, the way that they can, uh, the Republicans can go after the finances of, the, uh, of President Biden and the like. So, um, Give us a, a sense of, of what you think we should expect on the investigations front here early on. Oh, we should Obviously investigate. On I mean, we're gonna we're gonna see a lot. I mean, that's all they can do. Congress is not gonna be passing stuff. The the the, the you know you're gonna see the Senate doing nominations and you're gonna see the House doing investigations. That's that's the diet for the next two years until you get some sort of clarity and leadership in the country, probably after the 2024 election. So the 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 notion, Hunter Biden, we clearly know is part of it. And look, I don't know how that's going to go. I don't know what the appetite is both. I mean, there's going to be an appetite in the Washington media community for all this drama. But do Americans care? You know, I, I was with a bunch of CEOs last night, people that are running real businesses. And they're saying the FAA uh, failure on the grounding of airplanes is vastly more superior and important for the U.S. economy to consider or how various companies are being beaten in various third market economies by Chinese competitors because the Chinese have a plan, have support, have ability, have like, you know, long-term vision, surround the, uh, uh, the the companies that they've got out there with various support. He says, and we're obsessed with Joe Biden and whether he had a few classified documents. Now, I happen to be someone who thinks that Joe Biden's teams or his mismanagement of classified documents is a very serious issue. I'm not joining all of those that say, oh, it's apples and oranges. I actually think that that classified management classified issues which joe biden knows better than just about anybody because he's been in the business for so long is, is a big deal but to get to your core point the house is going to be chewing on all of that and they'll be doing focus groups to say you know like we all got exhausted hearing about benghazi but benghazi was the call now it's going to be hunter biden for a while there'll be you know joe biden did it too with the classified documents we're going to hear lots and lots and lots of that and it's going to it's going to play out and there will probably be other things that get drawn into um, the investigative business and i gotta tell you if you have a lot of ceos and businesses listening to this i took a big poll as i was at chamber of commerce dinner with ceos that flew in from around the country they're very frustrated with the media with the political sector of not focusing on things that really matter to their businesses and the economy so there's going to be a tension inside the republican camp if they waste this shot they've got on just stupid investigations that go nowhere, as we have a lot of things that aren't getting done that are really serious for the economy. But, but, just, but one thing I'll, I'll throw out is yeah, 663 days, 
until the election. <laughs> you know that you have a you have a countdown. You know, Kevin, Kevin does that, he does that every time, Steve, dates. and it's unclear whether he just throws a number out there that sounds Is that right. real. Yeah, yeah, it's real, uh, and it's going to be really real when these the the House holds these investigations. And I think, uh, to your point, to a degree, Steve, that uh, these House members know that, and not only will they be investigating uh, the Hunter Biden piece, but uh, there's a, a lot to investigate in, in the withdrawal of Afghanistan that oh, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, politically. There's a lot to investigate on uh, China and, and, and the origins of COVID on what was known, you know, the majority of America's split on vaccination, et cetera, et cetera. There will be a lot to investigation to investigate on the um, where the money went uh, during the uh, pandemic relief point. And then, of course, you know, there will be some things that will come out in, in Jim Jordan's investigation of justice in the FBI due to the uh, timing of, of the uh, a, a new cycle that we're seeing now with classified documents. So, you know, I, I didn't think that the January 6th committee would be that big of a deal politically during the midterms, but it turned out to be uh, a, a pretty big deal for some voters who were on the edge of, of, of going in DNR. And, and I do think uh, that some of these investigations, uh, particularly the Afghanistan investigation and others, could bring out some things that could prolong a discussion in the, that 663 days that you guys yeah. uh, don't believe me, uh, could become a political uh, sore that could grow bigger as we get closer to uh, the election. I so, completely agree with that. Completely agree with everything Orson just said. That's so, absolutely right, particularly on Afghan. Because so there are a lot of issues. You know, what I think, just just to add a point, because I do think because of the parity, near parity of power, but you know the Republicans have a slim majority. You're not going to you're going to have a breakdown in divided government. But you know, and so you know, we sort of say, oh, what they're going to do is use their power to investigate. But what what Orson said is really important is that there are important issues that are there are bipartisan interests uh, in the Afghanistan pullout. The bipartisan interest uh, in, in issues related to masking and COVID, um, and also you know, various issues about how the IRS has been manipulated, et cetera. So there are legitimate investigations that will be, actually you'll have, you know, Ro Khanna wants to be a member of the China committee. So we, you've got the interesting embers of bipartisan interest around some of these things, even as, so I, I, I shouldn't mock the fact that the House is just gonna do investigations. There will be some important stuff. So just agree with Orson on that. And, and Steve, just, I'm gonna, I wanna um, ask Orson something about uh, something you just brought up a moment ago regarding the position that CEOs um, are finding themselves in in this uh, new environment. Um, and that brings up the China issue, of, of course, which has been the other uh, major issue that's been front of front and center since the Congress convened. Um, and I believe it was you and, and Semaphore, actually, that kind of broke the news um, that the new foreign minister of China was going to be the, um, uh, the, uh, US, the China's ambassador to the United States, Qin Gong. Qinggong has made started to make some uh, moves in the in the in the aftermath of that meeting between Xi Jinping and President Biden that was an endeavor to put a floor under a deteriorating relationship, and it looks like Qinggong has sort of made moves continuing in that spirit. Some of the uh, some of the more vociferous wolf warrior diplomats have been kind of reined in and 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 reassigned. Um, 
But I would, I, I think, would you expect that Kevin McCarthy is going to follow through on what he had talked about last year and that he will make a very early trip to, to Taiwan uh, following Nancy Pelosi's trip last year? And while the Chinese are highly cognizant that there is a bigger, there's a lot more space between McCarthy and Biden than there was between Pelosi and Biden, China tends to look at the hierarchy of things. They see that he is third in line to the, or second in line to the, uh, to the, to the presidency. Um, and more, perhaps more importantly, they'll just use that as an excuse um, to continue to tighten the noose around Taiwan um, uh, a little bit anyway. But are you anticipating that that will, uh, that that will happen? Is that to Orson or me? That's to you, Steve. Um, yeah, I mean, Chin Dong, uh, I did break that news that he was moving there. And I think that that his um, hardest, darkest time when he was here, in his words, was the Nancy Pelosi trip to Taiwan. I think there is an expectation and concern about Kevin McCarthy likely uh, going to Taiwan. Kevin McCarthy has said he wants to go to Taiwan. And um, I think that it's, it's, it's now there. It's one of the few moments where Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy were on the same page. Uh, and I think that, that, you know, at the time when I was writing about this issue, in a way, I, I found it remarkable. If I were on the Chinese side, I said, you know, it's sort of interesting to see that there was a debate among the strategic class in Washington. The Pentagon, other players clearly did not want Nancy Pelosi to go. They didn't tell her not to go, but you saw the tension and seeing that tension um, uh, may have been heartening to some degree. The Chinese, Chin Gong, never cut off relations with the White House, continued to talk to the White House through this. And to some degree, while Chin Gong will say, hey, our response to Nancy Pelosi's trip was missiles, because they did live missile tests around Taiwan and did you know, um, exercises uh, um, replicating some of the elements of what an invasion would look like. I, I think that, I think this is the one area where real conflict and war could happen and 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 it's one of the things that i think the foreign minister and his elders and leadership up to take incredibly seriously so yeah i worry about that dimension of it that said on the broader u.s china relationship which everybody feels is getting tenser and tenser and as as orson said with you know the the election on this you know china committee and others overwhelming bipartisan support for doing this there's bipartisan support for a kind of China bashing or China threat um, assessment kinds of stuff going on right now, with the exception that if you go back to the Bali summit in Indonesia between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden, there was a definite um, neutralization of some of that tension, a kind of shift towards finding areas, climate, getting back to talking to each other after the Pelosi trip and the damage that it did both on climate discussions and military to military discussions, both of those are getting back on, on uh, uh, going again. But I, I think that the next two years, the Biden administration is going to have to figure out how does it continue to pump up American science capacity, chips capacity, investment in infrastructure, which is in part the way they're responding to China. And how do they take this globally by way of transnational partnerships that can be toughened up uh, and strengthened? to compete with China. I think that's going to be without hyperventilating into a jingoistic slash racist slash kind of fear mongering with China that ends up creating tensions that can go in very unexpected directions. So Orson, I want to I want to explore this in a, from a slightly different perspective for a second, um, and because, you know, you and I are in the business of, uh, of working with these CEOs 
And, you know, um, the other side of what Steve is talking about this, on, on the one hand, it sounds positive that there's bipartisan um, sort of agreement on, on, on having to be tough on China. On the other hand, that can also create a little bit of an arms race. Everybody's trying to outdo each other as being more and more hawkish um, um, on it. But we know on the other side of this that, you know, the dynamic um, in terms of how corporate America is viewed in Washington has also evolved. It's not uh, the alignment of, you know, the Republican Party being the party of big business and so on can't be can't be counted on in the same way that it has in the uh, in the past. If anything, there's also sort of bipartisan support for a lot of corporate bashing um, going on right now. So, you know, and you've talked about how um, a, a companies ought to get prepared for getting hauled in front of uh, Congress on a lot of different subjects. And one of those is going to be how they are dealing with China. And, you know, as there is a increasing sort of skepticism against woke capitalism or even ESG, generally speaking, in Washington, they will call out companies for being uh, for being hypocrites, for being so ESG friendly in the U.S., but continuing to do business in China or source from China or what have you. How do you see the China um, uh, story playing out for corporates uh, as they are dealing in, in Washington? Great question. So, you know, I, I think it, it really boils down to uh, recent legislation passed. A lot of these corporations uh, may be receiving tax credits, may be receiving federal support uh, through the uh, IRA bill and et cetera. And I could easily see members of the Freedom Caucus uh, and others really asking tough questions corporations and CEOs on uh, how could you receive uh, IRA funds but still you know make the majority of parts in China uh, there will be a whole lot of discussion on reshoring and made in America in this in this new Congress and I could easily see uh, Congress calling in CEOs who have been uh, a pro proponent uh, and have made it you know, the transition successfully. And I could see um, this Congress calling in CEOs who might not have uh, taken the first step. Uh, one thing to, to, to point out is the new chair of the Ways and uh, Means Committee, uh, Jason uh, Smith, I think is his name, Congressman, uh, you know, immediately came out um, with a statement when he was selected that he wants to explore tax credits uh, and, and really uh, support companies who make the right decision on moving uh, supply chains out of China to the U.S. And I could, you know, as Steve said, there's a whole lot of bipartisan support on bashing China. I guarantee there will be a whole lot of bipartisan support on building tax credits uh, uh, and, and really rewarding corporations who might move their supply chains back to the U.S. So, you know, through the litany of the political lens of how do we attack Biden and also uh, put pressure on these corporations, I think there will be connectivity on uh, legislation and corporations who have received support. But in the same regard, I do think uh, in a bipartisan voice, uh, you know, rewarding corporations and punishing potentially corporations who uh, might oppose this tax credit who might be supportive, uh, might be one angle. So, you know, there, there's a variety of ways, of course, 
you, you, you'll, you'll weed into the human rights discussion at some point. But right now, the reshoring made in America, uh, the possibility of putting pressure on the Senate to agree upon some kind of new form tax credit, as we saw, the, you know, what I think was popular, the CHIPS program, uh, is something that corporate America should be prepared to discuss. But I think one other element, if I may add, Kevin, is in discussed it uh, again with some C CEOs last night. And also, I did it publicly, so it could be on the record, with Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who's the incoming chair of the Un Energy and Commerce Committee. She voted against the CHIPS Act. And I was really interested in that because she's very pro-science. She's very pro-CHIPS. I said, why did you vote against the CHIPS Act? And she said, because people sort of hear that we're going to be investing in this, you know, these new plants and facilities, Intel, et cetera. But he said, Steve, we can't get the, the permitting process around building these new facilities hasn't been thought through. And the delays and whatnot, it's a lot like the energy, both renewables and fossils, the permitting side. And she says, the whole permitting ecosystem is very hostile to these kinds of national, you know, public necessary needs. And so that's why she was uh, a no vote on that, not that this is a vote. So I think this broad side of, are we getting the ecosystem right? Is the environmental and sustainable growth community going to be on board with the kind of national industrial policy agenda for competitiveness reasons, there's gonna be some real tensions in there I see coming up. And you know, whenever I hear people about, you know, yeah, I would love onshoring. And, and this really all started a lot of it over the heart attack that and the seizures that this country had realizing how dependent it was for um, active pharmaceutical ingredients on China. And you know, when you kind of look at where these things are sourced and why they're there, there are a zillion different reasons, regulatory reasons, cost of production, you know, transportation. And so to move that whole ecosystem back to US, which I support, is gonna require that kind of whole of government, whole of states, whole of purpose, and it's gonna be super expensive. And as I talk to people in the business community, their fear even about that is price stability and having commitments in terms of the purchasing over the long term to justify those investments. And I have to tell you, just sitting here in DC with Orson, I don't see that kind of debate and discussion really happening at the deep level that a lot of CEOs need to hear and feel and sense to, to make sure that this process continues to move productively. So I think we're at the tip end of a, of a big, deeper debate in the country that's unresolved. Yeah. And, you know, I would say just from talking to uh, talking to corporate managements, you know, outside the beltway, you know, the conversation becomes ever more complex. Right. I mean, diversifying supply chain out of China is maybe one question. Uh, and then but reshoring into the United States is an entirely different. One. There's a whole world uh, that's out there that's competing um, for, you know, for for that business. And, um, and and there's a lot of optionality out there. So. I want to move, though, to um, something else you brought up at the very beginning, Steve, and, and, and we knew we were going to come to, which is spending bills and obviously um, uh, the debt ceiling that is looming um, out there. And I believe Goldman Sachs has suggested that it's going to be around late August, September, um, that the um, uh, that the debt ceiling issue will become, uh, you know, will be the issue. Uh, but before we do that, maybe you could just walk the audience through here a little bit, just given the math of Congress, right, with this. Uh, with this very slim Republican majority um, has got this this hostile wing that seems, you know, very willing to blow things up. Um, just sort of maybe explain mechanically how this ought to work when you still have, um, you know, the overwhelming majority uh, of, of the GOP not subscribing to that kind of extreme wing. Plus, you've got a 
uh, a, a democratic, democratic caucus that thus far looks like it's going to stick together quite well. How do you see, you know, how effective can this cabal be at holding? I, I, I think it's really, look, I, I think what they're different, they're different potential stories. One story is it's highly fragile, can fall apart any moment, motion to vacate can be called, or that this uh, Freedom Caucus can continue to assert itself and its prerogatives in very dramatic, flamboyant ways. That That's one thing. Another side is that part, perhaps, and look, I'm not, I don't even know if I agree with what I'm about to say. Maybe some of the silver lining in what the Freedom Caucus has gotten McCarthy to agree to is to democratize to some degree or sort of decentralize some of the power around the speaker's ability to set the agenda, to basically dictate what will be dealt with and what won't be dealt with, and kind of move some of that power to the committees, will benefit not just the Freedom Caucus, will benefit other players in that system too. And one thing we haven't been giving a lot of attention is another potential renegade group is the Problem Solvers Caucus, right? So Brian Fitzpatrick cares that, the, fo the folks that are in the center may in fact assert themselves. And we've seen that Brian, uh, Fitzpatrick essentially saying that's what they're exploring that may not work with a discharge commit, but beginning to anticipate that they need to offset the power of the Freedom Caucus. And now with some of the deals that have been made, they've got the ability to bring legislation forward. And guess what? They can ally with the Democrats. So, so the Democrats, if they remain united, or if there are enough of them, can actually hijack the circumstances now and then when they need to. I don't, I don't know how it will affect their messaging or politics, but there's an interesting opportunity for Hakeem Jeffries, who's a very smart guy uh, in this. And there's an interesting opportunity for Josh Gottheimer, Brian Fitzpatrick, those folks in the, that kind of no labels-ish problem solvers caucus wing. And I think that's a second story of what could happen. And I, and, and, but I think the big thing is that previous speakers have almost um, autocratic control of the agenda of what of, of what gets dealt with the note, and that may shift and change with some of the rules things. So we, I, I I don't know if this is right, but we actually may see some productive steps that come out of this and some bipartisan deals as the response to curb the power of the Freedom Caucus. So what are you guys expecting in terms of on the on spending bills, you know, in an environment where, um, you know, you can um, where spending bills are open to uh, unlimited amendment? Um, you know, is this um, uh, how do you expect this to play out? There's been a lot of talk um, specifically on the defense budget. Um, there's been talk about support for Ukraine at a critical moment where it's clear that this war is going to continue. Uh, well into uh, into this year, if not uh, if not beyond. So before we get to the debt limit risk, how do you guys see the the, the spending uh, the spending bills uh, dynamic playing out? I just would throw out to Steve's earlier point. I, I think when they have the hardball discussion on these spending bills is when the leadership of the speaker becomes an issue, and and it is when I think at the time of the play or the movie that you might see an exit um, because uh, they may not be able to agree upon moving uh, things forward and the easiest way to do that is to say uh, we need someone else in charge. So I, I would toss out that that is when the time that I think, you know, his leadership will really be questioned and if, if there ever was an opportunity to, to make a change, that would be 
the chapter that I could see easily happening. And so when it comes to the debt ceiling, um, Steve, how nuclear do you think these guys are willing to, to go? You um, used a, uh, a commonly used term um, uh, by economists and bankers out there, which is the full faith and credit of the United States. And that actually is on the line. We know that the uh, two and 10 year treasury bills are the single most important priced items in the entire world. Every price is based off of those. Um, and, um, you know, and uh, ultimately the U.S. has, um, has never defaulted. Uh, do the, does this wing understand and or care uh, about the ramifications of this? Or do they even, do they even know uh, what would happen to global financial markets, including the U.S., um, Look, if they we, were we, go nuclear on them? We're in an age where so many black swan events are stacking up once in a lifetime, once in a generation events are almost coming monthly. And this is one we're staring at the black swan and a wing of the GOP wants to go catch that black swan and, and, uh, and, and, rec and the record government. You have to understand that, that part of a, a strain in American politics, which has always been there, has been to crash, is, is hyper, hyper nationalist to a point where that's where we call it isolationist, but they have no regard for global issues. They look at America as a victim of its international deals. They want, uh, they, they want to get rid of those obligations, a kind of pugnacious nationalism that is very disdainful in disregard for anything global or international and the, and and that has always been you know when i worked for jeff bingaman in the 1990s and i would meet folks that came out of that the strain in new mexico um i think what's different today is they're on the internet they're organized they have leaders and you know members in congress and that wing has become more substantial of how to create a spike of political influence at various points and they have grabbed the debt ceiling debate as a way to to crash the government there is a anti-government almost anarchy i think that they um that some of these folks kind of fantasize about so yeah i do not underestimate the willingness of this wing and so when you sort of say are they rational do they know what, what crashing the full faith in kind i just don't i'm just telling you as honestly as i can i know this is on the record i don't believe they care and that the goals that they think they have that they're very um committed to are greater to them than the issue about uh, America's credit rating. But, and but, so, yeah, what, I look at it as a very serious deal, and there are people willing to play it. And look, I mean, we're all set this tension up, and we're all tense about it. We may get to the brink and come back and be saved at the moment, but you used to sort of see that. There was a kind of orchestrated dance where everybody would be rational and reasonable at the end. Now you can't be sure. That's the problem. In, Sorry, in, in, in that, and I think that's why, um, you know, where Steve started with Mitch McConnell is going to be so important in the in these discussions. I, I think the Senate has moved more towards the center. Of course, the margins are are really close, but uh, there are going to be some some key upcoming Senate races uh, in the next cycle, um, and <clears throat> I think McConnell uh, is going to be a bigger player than maybe many think and how this plays out of, of really trying to move the house 
not necessarily towards the center, but be more rash, rational about their approach, particularly on yeah. its effect on the economy. So keep an eye on how Mitch McConnell plays between not only uh, the speaker, but the White House uh, and, and business leaders, because, you know, it was a big deal for him to show up on that bridge with two, I guess, oh, yeah. was it two senators, uh, one senator, two senators, two Republican senators, and one Republican governor is to shake the hand to talk about a crowning, you know, a legislative achievement um, by the White House and Congress. And I, I think you'll see more of that. And hopefully, um, as I mentioned, that, you know, the Senate being more in the center, maybe there'll be some positive things that come out of that, that, that will kind of sidetrack, hopefully, uh, what we're all concerned about, what you know, what might come out of the house. But one, one more quick thing on, on Mitch McConnell to add to what Orson said is remember, I mean, th so I agree with everything Orson just said, but there's a little bad blood uh, between Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer the last time we went around this bend because, right. and I, don't, I can't get into it, but I'll just say there may have been some deal somewhere out there that Mitch McConnell would deliver those 10 votes deliver the 10 votes to get the uh, uh, debt ceiling issue dealt, dealt, dealt with and was pushing and that behind the deal that the filibuster may have been preserved to sort of tied into that. So there was a deal. But the first thing that happened was Chuck Schumer came out and basically kicked McConnell in, his, in the teeth. And, and there were a lot of centrist Democrats, particularly Senator Joe Manchin, who were furious with Schumer for the disregard and disrespect for what McConnell had achieved in holding that and doing the mature thing. Now, I don't know how McConnell, I don't know if he holds grudges or not, but the last time McConnell had to bring people around, Chuck Schumer treated him like crap and, and, and you know, basically crapped all over what he did. So I think that's an issue that I don't know how it's gonna play out again, but we have to remember now that McConnell, who is now the longest serving leader of any party in history, he's been around this a lot of times. And I don't know if he's going to give Schumer the opportunity to do that again. And so that's another interesting side dimple of this of this debate. I don't know where it goes. So, you know, just McConnell saving the day on 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 this probably happens. But there, the last time he did it, the Democrats were not um, at least Chuck Schumer was not uh, helpful in terms of creating goodwill around that around that step. Okay, guys, I'm cognizant of the time here. So we're gonna to go to the speed round. I'm gonna to come to each of you, each of you on a subject, and if we could just try to keep it tight, it would be great. So uh, Orson, you spoke about, um, you spoke about uh, corporate interaction with Congress vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Let, let's pull back a little bit and just think about your, your sort of ideas here right now on best practices engaging this Congress. Um, we talked a lot about the, the speaker, but you know, I know you and I, we, we've discussed um, how companies also ought to be um, interacting with Hakeem Jeffries um, and, uh, and the Democratic side. So what are your thoughts on, uh, on that as we head into this 118th Congress? So it's, it's a layup right now for CEOs and business leaders that they haven't done. So to send congratulatory notes to uh, definitely the speaker, uh, to Hakeem, uh, to all of the leaders in Congress, just letting them know uh, that they <clears throat> appreciate their support and more importantly, uh, want to be a thought partner in whatever they may be considering. So uh, if you haven't done so, it's an easy thing to do. Uh, Steve knows, and I know as someone who's worked in the White House and the mayor's office and the governor's office, uh, uh, politicians read handwritten notes 
so uh, for for those who for you that don't do it, uh, reconsider it. Uh, but uh, for for business leaders, the things that I think quickly that they should be concerned about uh, is, as Steve said, there ain't going to be a whole lot of uh, legislative activity, but there will be a whole lot of executive orders rolling out in the next six months. So, you know, really reaching out to the White House early uh, to make certain that uh, those issues that you care about, that they know about. Uh, secondly, uh, the regulatory bodies uh, for our, our corporate clients, uh, they need to be paying attention to. Uh, we saw uh, the big rollout over the last 48 hours on non-competes at the FTC. I think you'll see uh, more of that related to antitrust, particularly at the FCC. Uh, the SEC uh, rolled out their climate disclosure uh, uh, program. Uh, look for that to become a potential uh, target in this ESG woke discussion, Congress. Uh, and CFIUS uh, on mergers and acquisitions, uh, particularly related to China, deals to be heavily, heavily scrutinized uh, would be something I would be concerned uh, about. So, you know, whether it's the ESG discussion, whether it's the woke discussion, whether it's moving supply chains, consumer pricings, I guarantee you that you'll see uh, corporations testifying on the price of eggs in the next two weeks here. <laughs> Uh, that is a big deal that hits home in the great state of Wisconsin. You hear that, Kevin? Great state of Wisconsin. Uh, the reshoring uh, coalitions, uh, the U.S. Chamber is, is a top target of this new Republican Congress uh, because of some of the stance and support they took on the legislative front. Uh, CEOs and businesses are concerned about how their trade groups uh, will play out or be supported uh, in this new Congress. And then most importantly, uh, the investigations and news cycles. Um, you know, we we started this conversation on what this Congress might go after, but it's also the Senate. You know, the Senate will be investigating Big Pharma, will be investigating uh, China, will be investigating potentially uh, uh, consumer pricing. Uh, so that not only you know will it be on the House side, but you'll you'll have a lot of uh, senators asking a lot of tough questions, particularly on data privacy, uh, technology that uh, the business community uh, should be concerned about. But more than anything else, uh, to close it out, uh, I, I really would keep a, a careful eye on some of these executive orders uh, that are likely to come out. Some may come before the State of the Union, which is going to happen in a couple of weeks or, 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 or immediately after, uh, that could have some really, really uh, uh, big impacts on uh, many of our listeners and uh, the business community. Okay, so Steve, I want to pick up on that for you now. So um, obviously the administration after two years can actually point to a pretty interesting uh, legislative tra um, uh, track record, right? With the CHIPS Act, with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the Electoral Count Act, uh, the Protection of Marriage Act, um, the, the confirmation of Katanji Brown-Jackson, um, but clearly, with a, uh, the new era of divided government, we're moving on to, as Orson suggested, the executive order stage and the regulatory stage uh, of government. So what do you expect uh, now coming out of the, the, the key White House agenda, um, I guess, uh, going forward here? I, I, I basically think that Orson covered it really, really well. Um, and I 
you know, I think that the issues that come over, you know, workforce issues and the social contract and what we've seen with the FTC, particularly in the non-compete stuff, and, and I also think the ESG side um, is going to be some area where the chamber begins to sue these. They are suing uh, these agencies for overstepping their bounds. I think I think the leadership at the chamber is going to try to show that, in fact, it's not on board with all of the ESG uh, direction and trying to basically define it in ways and, and challenging government to realize, you know, from their perspective is overstepping its lines. But I, I think the administration is going to keep, you know, moving down that direction across the board and I, I think forcing government. I think one of the interesting things I've seen is people like Gigi Sohn, who was, um, had, had been dropped um, for an FCC commissioner role, has now been renominated. You know, Joe Manchin was one of the uh, opponents of her. Now they've got a net plus one vote, so they don't need Joe Manchin anymore. So they're going to probably bring back some of the uh, folks that had not gone forward before. So um, you'll have, uh, you know, you're, you're going to find, you know, whether it's regulatory action, you're also going to just see nominations move much forward, much more quickly and robustly in the Biden team. And I think that drives news too well. And I think that while you've lined up a lot of things that look like Biden successes and clearly are, it's also going to look successful as he's getting more and more people uh, confirmed into positions. And that's going to translate, you know, in the in the minds of people, wow, Biden is moving. It's been interesting in some of the latest polls, Biden for the first time ever is up above 50% in terms of uh, impressions and favorability in his ratings. So all of this has led to him getting a, a bit of an uptick, and I think that's going to probably continue with the appointments stuff. Um, Orson, it is, uh, it is argued by many that the Dobbs decision uh, did impact elements of the, uh, of the midterm election. So as you look forward to the, uh, to the remainder of the Supreme Court's uh, session, um, what are the, uh, are, are there absolutely significant um, decisions that are expected that you're, uh, that you're anticipating? Um, and, and what about cases that are to be argued? Yeah, I don't think anything will come close to the Dobbs decision. I think that was a once in a generation decision by the Supreme Court that really moved the needle, uh, surprised the majority of posters. And, and if it wasn't for that decision, uh, maybe uh, Chuck Schumer wouldn't be where he is and, and the margins wouldn't be as close as, as they were. Uh, was a big deal in the great state of Wisconsin uh, in some of these battleground states. Uh, so I, I don't see any ruling coming out uh, that could come close. There are a couple things on the menu, such as affirmative action uh, and could be uh, some additional movement on uh, gay marriage potentially, and uh, that, that could be a driver. Uh, but I think what would be the biggest deal uh, that would, would, would would, would turn this town upside down uh, if there was an opening on the Supreme Court and, mm -hmm. and, and, and the possibility as we're hearing <laughs> uh, since Biden is in charge trying to find younger members of the Supreme Court and convincing uh, Supreme Court members to consider leaving early so they can put in someone who can be there for the next 15 to 20 years. So the composition uh, of the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court vote in this in this environment, I think would be politically charged and and would would definitely be one of the top news items uh, that come out of this town. You know, in two thousand twenty three, what do you think, Steve? I totally agree with that. Um, 
don't know how it's going to go. I and mean, you hear rumors all the time about, you know, who, who they're trying to nudge, nudge off the bench or into, you know, as, as Anthony Kennedy told me, he says he is not retired. He's, he's just in a different status and he can still weigh in. So, you know, they, they don't like to be calling themselves retired when they're off of that, but basically, you know, change the composite of the justice would be a huge, huge story. Um, but I have no idea uh, where it's going to go or whether any of the associate justices right now will, will agree to um, step down. But there was a rumor uh, about a couple of the judges um, that went like wildfire. We were trying to chase it down at semaphore and, and honestly got nothing. So don't know where it stands now. And Steve, in, when all is said and done now, after the midterm elections and after the events of last week in the uh, determining of the uh, speaker, ultimately, how do you see the position now of Donald Trump in the, oh, uh, in the power question. hierarchy of the GOP? Um, and do you anticipate now that the January 6th committee has been disbanded, but the report has been issued and the recommendations have been made to the Justice Department? Do you expect that that is another that that dog is going to bark again in a significant way, um, you know, during this uh, during the next year or so? Well, I've seen everyone from Rachel Maddow and everyone else, you know, speak breathlessly about the you know legal hook coming after Donald Trump, and they have never uh, got it quite right. And so um, I don't think that the, I mean we don't know what the special counsel is going to do or is going to go with that, and and to what damage. I mean, the the interesting thing about Donald Trump is that the legal challenges he has, particularly from the federal government, tend to inflame and enhance his campaign stature rather than to detract from it. And I and I and I say this cautiously because I believed and wrote at the time that Donald Trump's the air was going out of the Donald Trump balloon before the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. That that brought Donald Trump back. You saw a divorce going on in the media, separation going on between Rupert Murdoch's operations and Donald Trump. That resurrected Trump. And I think, to a certain degree, it's a mixed situation. I think that we all know that with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene calling Donald Trump and him yelling at people on the floor in the last moments of that last vote of the 15th ballot, and him yelling at people to get on board with this and to step down, that was there. But we also saw Matt Gates tweet out uh, when people saying, why aren't, why aren't you doing what, what Donald Trump wants? And he says, well, Donald Trump's not very good with HR issues. We all know that. You know? So there's been a disregard for Trump and definitely a diminishment, in my view, of his stature and footprint. But he's not out of the game. And I don't know how to predict whether the special counsel's actions on the legal issues that, that, that Trump is facing, that could actually swell him up more. But, but you know, what I see is DeSantis hungry for the job. I see a lot of other people lining up. We see what Mike Pence is doing. And so I think that Donald Trump is becoming one of many again, but you should never underestimate his presence or impact. But I do sense, at least right now, this moment, a diminishment of Trump, but he's not out of the arena to, to go back to Orson's uh, great analogy at the beginning. And finally, Steve, you know, uh, at the beginning of the call, Orson congratulated you and your colleagues on standing up Semaphore last year. And uh, for those who are unfamiliar with it, it's it's a great morning, uh, great morning read. As you mentioned, you've broken broken news. You've made a big uh, made a big splash. But there's been this kind of remaking of the Washington media ecosystem, and and um, you know, names that uh, not that long ago nobody had ever heard of before. You know, the Politicos and Axios. These are these are as big in, in, in the town as the New York Times and the Washington Post are and so on. So, um, you know, uh, talk a little bit about the space you. you guys are, 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 have created and, and well, you're trying well, to real, do. Real, 
real quickly, you know, our CEO, Justin Smith, who was my boss at the Atlantic years ago, but he was the CEO of Bloomberg Global Media, and Ben Smith, who was the top media writer at the New York Times, but he was also the former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and I first got to know him at Politico years ago. We all pretty much, you know, know all the players. We're all kind of related and work for each other, knew each other in this town. Um, but, but Ben and Justin, and I think I was a, you know, quick add-on to that, basically saw that there's an opportunity and a market opportunity, I hate to put it this way, but let's be honest, in the trust and news crisis out there, that right now there is just a fundamental uh, distrust of media and it's across from the right to the left. And we thought, is there a way, you know, to take a page out of Axios's book in restructuring and deconstructing, they did smart brevity, can we do something about bias and the perception of bias in media? Can we uh, basically put forward a way to tell the news give the writer's take, which admits the framing and scaffolding and bias and currents that, that Steve Clemens has about, you know, Joe Manchin and Joe Biden. And then can you build in a disagreement that's credible, that's an alternative view? Can you build an international perspective or take um, to do that? And I have to tell you, we do that in our reported journalism. And I didn't know if it was going to fly or not. It's flying. We're growing like crazy. We're also breaking news. It was one of the Ben Smith's really big insights. You know, operations, Kadia Goba, breaking news like crazy. Liz Hoffman, you know, so we hired from the Wall Street Journal, is running our business newsletter. Incredible story. She's just basically got zillions of people, you know, following her now. Um, Reed Albergati, who's our tech person in San Francisco. We hired Prashant Rao from The Atlantic as our global editor, and he produces our daily newsletter called Flagship. Uh, out of London, which is a good quick take on global affairs. I anchor a team uh, of about eight people that produce principles, you know, on politics and policy in Washington uh, each day. And we do a, you know, a digest of all of this, but we build in, you know, we curate smartly, but we build in uh, alternative takes in, into what we're doing. And we expose our own uh, writers uh, biases and frames, if you will. And, and I think that it's, it's gone crazy. We're growing crazy and we're hitting financial targets that were high. Uh, and so I hope people check out Semaphore and sign up for principles or flagship or whatever other, we have tons of news newsletters now. We've, you know, we've come on, today is our three month anniversary, by the way. So happy, happy birthday to us. That's fantastic. And uh, yeah, get it in your uh, morning inbox. It's a good read. And I know you will be reporting um, from the World Economic Forum at Davos yes. uh, next week. Um, so your insights will be uh, will be uh, coming in early in the morning uh, on that. Great. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining. You, um, you know, this uh, this year is going to unfold in interesting ways. I'm sure we'll have to revisit a lot of these subjects. So hopefully you'll come back. Uh, but Steve Clemens uh, and Orson Porter, I want to thank you both for joining today and thank everybody else. Uh, for for joining, wish you a good day and a good uh, a good long weekend here in in the United States. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kajawara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Taneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at Taneo Insights at Taneo.com. See you next time.